Welcome to the Memory Distillery, everyone. I'm Anthony Verneri. And I'm John Deck. And each week we will malt, mash, ferment, and distill our way through the spirits of our past in the form of long-loved movies. And this week, why, my Uncle Dumpa had a problem with his probate, and he had to take these big pills and drink lots of water. That's right, we're watching Who Framed Roger Rabbit from 1988, directed by Robert Zemeckis. And everyone, please welcome to the show our special guest, two weeks in a row now with special guests, Alex Shabar. Uh, welcome to the show. Tell us about yourself. Great question. <laughs> <laughs> Trick um, question. You're, you're always on the spot. Yeah, right? I'm like, oh, I've lost all knowledge of who I am. Um, yeah, no, longtime movie lover. When I was little, I actually would take time and my mom and I would make these lists throughout the year of movies we wanted to see. And then during the summer, we would actually watch these movies together. And I think that helped grew a real appreciation for film. Um, beyond that, I've done some pretty insane movie projects over my sort of history. When I lived in Ohio right after college, I did a project called Watch This, where we picked the AFI's top 100 list of movies and we screened them publicly for an entire year. Oh, that sounds uh, so, that so cool. Movies. Nice. Yeah, it was. Um, you you uh, you have no idea how long a year long project is until you're three months into it and realize <laughs> you have nine months left to go. But every Wednesday and Friday, we screened a film and they they grew. You know, they started in people's basements and then suddenly we're doing uh, you know 350 people screenings of King Kong and their outside public fountain square. Oh, that's or so we cool. filled the theater that uh, Steven Spielberg premiered Raiders of the Lost Ark in because he's from Ohio and he premiered it in this very small theater called the 20th Century Theater and we filled it with people to watch Raiders of the Lost Ark. Just an amazing community citywide project that was That, awesome. that is so wild. So yeah, movies. <laughs> it's been fun. Uh, so what made you pick Who Framed Roger Rabbit for this week's episode? You sent me, you know, you asked about movies that sort of connected with me as, as a child that I hadn't really thought about in a while. So I was trying to dig deep. And Who Framed Roger Rabbit is one of these seminal movies of my life because my mom, again, you know, God bless her, but probably showed me movies I shouldn't have seen <laughs> at a younger age. And this was definitely one of them. Uh, beyond the fact that probably most of the jokes went way over my head. Uh, Judge Doom, who today I kept having to remind myself not to say Judge Dredd, because they're very different characters yes. than Judge Doom. Uh, but Judge Doom, I think, was one of those nightmare monsters uh, that has never um, gotten out of my head. I think even in the, you know, the, the midst of midnight, I will look up and see those eyes popping out because it scared me that much as a child. <laughs> so I'm very excited now. I have probably not seen this movie in over a decade, and I'm, I'm excited to see it with new eyes. So that'll be good times. That yeah. is one of those scenes that kind of stays with you, right, John? Like oh, yeah. the, the eyes popping out of Christopher Lloyd's head. And the voice gets higher and higher. Mm -hmm. And you're just like, oh, this is terrifying. Because he's so, he's so flat the entire movie. It's a great performance because you never see it coming. It's so, so unbelievably shocking that first time that, that this is where the movie has led to. It's so unbelievable. It's funny because um, one of the, the first things that always I think of when I think of Who Framed Roger Rabbit is um, not when I first watched it or when I first experienced it. It was the fact that uh, my little sister, this was on a list of movies that she absolutely loved and watched over and over again when she was like three years old. 
this is not a movie that I would typically imagine most three-year-olds should have on the rotation. But I think I mentioned on the show that it was uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, The Little Mermaid, and Beetlejuice were were the three. Yeah, and so I think it turned out pretty well for her personality, but it was one of those things where it's like, yeah, there's some (laughs) intense moments that a a very young child could be possibly scarred by. But uh, no, I think... um, being a bit of perhaps of the elder statesman in the room, I remember seeing this in the theater and I remember lining up uh, with a good friend of mine and uh, I very vividly remember this was one of these movies that like had a lot of anticipation and there was a line forming down the block to get into the, the opening night show on Friday and it was just so exciting to go see it. Um, and I... Maybe what year did this come out, Anthony? Eighty-eight. I was going to say I was trying to remember if it. I think it was the same summer Beetlejuice came out, but I could be wrong. That's a great. But uh, that could be correct. Yeah. Just either that, or I'm just combining memories. Either way, it's good. That's that's all point of the show is to really dig into the memory aspect of it. But yeah, it was just <laughs> some. Re- Man, the eighties yeah. were weird. They but it really was like super weird. Remember, you know, waiting in line, then finally getting to see this and thinking it was fun and cool and, and like good movie. And then like years later, seeing it again and being able to really appreciate it and dig in. And uh, kind of like you, Alex, it's been, I don't, I don't know how long it's been quite a while since I've seen it. And even the last time I saw it, which was a long time ago, I remember being particularly impressed by virtually every performance, both animated and live action and in, in what <laughs> they did at a time when the special effects were, like I've also watched like little documentaries and the, the specials on the DVD getting behind the scenes. And there's just amazing stuff there about what they did in order to make this feel as realistic as it does. So like, as we're talking about it right now, I'm just getting excited to, to watch it again and just take it in as, you know, you know, a, a decade older version of myself, you know, what, yeah. what do I get out of it this time? I'm a, a huge fan of, of Bob Hoskins performances, especially. Oh, he's phenomenal. And so this. like, that's just something I'm also super excited about. So yeah, that's, I don't know. What about you, Anthony? Well, yeah. So, I mean, it's easily been 25 ish years for me, but this was one of the most enjoyable movies of my childhood, despite the fact that I haven't seen it in so long, I still have these vivid memories of so many of the scenes and, and having it feel so realistic and thinking, oh, you know, this this, this is just something. I mean, I'm six years old when this comes out, but, you know, th- th- this is something that could happen. This, tunes and human beings <laughs> just live side by side amongst one another. But I think that as I got older, one of the things that really uh, th- th- that I've found to be sort of wild was the fact that they combined universes the way that they did because you have this sort of dc or sorry not dc um disney and and warner brothers con- mm-hmm. convergence which today with as factionized as things are and you know everything is so segmented and even sometimes within uh within franchises that it's it, it, this is something that's completely unheard of today like you would never get yeah it, Five years ago, it was almost impossible to think of an MCU and, uh, you know, Fox property Marvel crossover. <laughs> yeah. Coming but together. for us to get, yeah. you know, two completely different Looney Tunes and Disney sort of combinations there uh, was absolutely wild to me. Um, I was shocked later on in, in, or in later viewings 
because like I said, this was this came out. I was probably six, uh, probably around my mid early to mid teens, realizing that Judge Doom uh, and Doc Brown were the same person was was mind blowing <laughs> to me at, at that age. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I think on the whole, I'm I'm super excited to watch this. Well, I, I think the anticipation's getting to be a bit much. I think it's time that the three of us uh, jump back in, and and I do believe Anthony. I think you were saying it's on Disney Plus. Is that correct? Yep, it is over at the House of Mouse. So if you guys want to uh, sign up for that free trial, or if you're already subscribed to it, you can catch it there, or you can watch it from your personal library, or go to one of the various streaming rental services as i always talk about uh and you can get it there and then when we come back we are talking some who framed roger rabbit john alex are you ready oh yeah i'm ready let's do it Let, let's do it <laughs> that's my line oh no <laughs> jumped too fast anthony you're out sorry fuck all right well We are back, everyone. Uh, Alex, thank you again for joining us. Uh, for those of you who either weren't paying attention or somehow managed to jump <laughs> into the podcast at just the right time, we just got done watching Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Sure uh, did. First impressions of this most recent watch, gents. I mean, this movie holds up, which is wonderful because it has been a long time since I've seen it, and I was kind of worried on two levels. One... Was it going to be as funny and as wonderful as I remember it being? And the answer is yes, it was. And then two, were there going to be problematic moments that sometimes films from the 80s tend to have? And the answer is no. I was really surprised on the lack of kind of moments that made me cringe and go, oh, if they were cutting that now, it would be here. Um, there's a lot of really great sort of subtle social commentary in the film, but nothing that overtly was like, Ooh, if they, if they made that today, they would not include that. I was, I was wonderfully surprised that it not only holds up, but it actually holds up well. Yeah. I think as far as, uh, like, especially when, when we talk about, like you just said, eighties movies and things that, you know, you, you couldn't do today. I think the the only thing that I might have called questionable would be the uh the cartoon the uh, bullet. bullets yep. and the gun. Exactly. And that the, was the, the one moment. The one Native American one. <laughs> You're just like, Other Yeah, that, the, that's about the it. whole the whole rest of this movie i I found to be simultaneously uh wholesome and a semi adult joke, if that makes sense. Yeah. Uh it was just it, it it, it was a lot of fun to watch and uh, a lot of great moments that we could talk about throughout the rest of the episode. John? Yeah, I think you could probably, I mean, there's definitely a lot of fun being had with this movie on many different levels. Uh, on one level, you do have those uh, fun little borderline adult innuendo, double entendre type <laughs> jokes that there's no way in hell most kids would have any clue what's going on. Um, and they're sprinkled throughout. And then you also have the the technical joy that the the people who made this poured into this on so many levels where they did things in oh, this yes. movie that like oh, it's amazing. the average person would never have any clue that it was even there or not, but it was added in because the the animators and the people working this wanted every detail, you know, every bit, you know, that could be awesome. And so at a time that we were, you know, pre Andy Serkis, um, mm -hmm. 
pack pack as we say uh no paz yeah anyway um before all the pass the 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 cgi stand-ins made things just a bit more technologically believable when it's all hand-drawn it just is amazing to me what they did and and i had fun just i've seen this movie i don't know how many times but a lot of them like i said in the opening was when my like younger sister was watching them and so it blended (laughs) in and i but this time around, I paid a lot of attention, and there was just all sorts of stuff I saw going on there. I had I had a lot of fun, uh, and yeah, I feel like it's still very um, stylistically just really well done and exciting. What am I even saying? I'm just overwhelmed because <laughs> somebody You're else jumped in quick. No, it's true because you watch it, and the physical comedy in this movie is is joyful and hilarious and ridiculous, and the fact that it's not people it's people and cartoons or all cartoons or this beautiful mix you just keep laughing and you're like this is wonderful you know you mentioned cgi and cgi is amazing but there is a lifelessness that sometimes brings the cgi this whole movie was life it was just oh oh my god an explosion of joy like how could you not watch this movie and smile the entire way through and i love i love they set they set things up where even if there's stuff that's not really amazingly great or hilarious like um, like I said, I love Bob Hoskins. I love him in this role. But like when he gets to the point near the end where he's you know doing all the physical comedy and trying to make uh, the weasels like die from laughter and all that, like <laughs> mm-hmm. it, like he he's no goofy. You know, he doesn't have that skill set. He's not as amazingly uh, skilled at all the physical comedy, but he's going to hit the lowest common denominators in order to get the job done. And like and so you know, his dad was a clown. He has this background. You know, and so it's like. It's all done like he's some kind of a cartoon. This isn't like watching Kramer on Seinfeld, you know, or, or something where it's a little more subtle but outrageous. This is like big, foppish cartoon live action guy imitating the style of animated characters in a live action thing. But he's live action. It's like there's so many layers and it works yeah. in such a cyclical way. It's great. Well, it's that uh, Sideshow Bob moment where Krusty yeah. the Clown tells him that you have to have the class and the poise to pull off being hit in the face with a pie. You know, when he gets mm. those bowling balls in the face, you're <laughs> laughing because it's, you know, he's been such a grouch the entire time that to watch this happen, you're just like, ah, this is perfect. This is exactly what yeah. I want for this movie. <laughs> Seeing those two extremes is, is that that alone to me, I think, was, was really well executed by Bob Hoskins. Uh, going back to the physical comedy thing for a second, that had to have been so so difficult to pull off especially in these scenes where it's between a human and a tune because you you have to get the timing just right in order to really pull it off well like yeah you could film bob hoskins grabbing thin air and and throwing it around like he's grabbing roger's ears (laughs) and throwing him around but to to really truly get that right you have to you have to have the right timing, but they also paid a lot of attention to the small details with a lot of these tunes. Like one really good example would be um, right after uh, Eddie discovers Roger in his bed and Roger jumps up onto the bed and the bed moves. Yeah. Yeah. Like it has just that, that slight shift. Like, Oh, there's weight on this bed now like that a lot of care and attention has to be paid in order for that to happen. Well, there's a, there's a thing uh, in, in, in the world of filmmaking and animation like that, like 
Yeah, this what's it is called? Like, Bumping b- the lamp? Yeah, like, like b- b- before memes, um, there you know people came up with <laughs> phrases because uh, they didn't know how to put words onto uh, images. Anyway, but like yeah, bumping the lamp—that's exactly it. Where he's working with the hacksaw and trying to get the lamp, and like as he sits down, his head hits the lamp, and that lamp is swaying back and forth, and every right. shadow in the scene on Roger and on Eddie and on the handcuffs—everything is perfectly. They have to hand animate and clear out the, the the actual shadows of the moving lamp with the stand-ins that are you know holding the part <laughs> of the hand handcuff that's up as Roger is presumably holding it. They they have some sort mm-hmm. of contraption holding that, and like the whole time when the, the lamp's moving around, they're animating all of the shadows, but also wiping out the unnecessary shadows. And it's like, yeah. what are the chances? that like a person watching this is going to notice a tiny flicker no, on part zero. of a shadow They're on the ground. not even going to notice it. Yeah. And so it's like... <laughs> no, it's you're, just... because you're going to have your mind fucking blown by all of this <laughs> this technical wizardry that's happening. And so, yeah, so it's like that kind of love, I think, in a way, it reminds me a, a bit, too, of some uh, like like Jim Henson, you know, uh, Muppet type things where you just have um, some subtleties and performance yeah. and yeah, some things that like bring you into the moment and make you think that this puppet or this Muppet was like an actual character in the, the movie or show. And like, and with this, they, they find this way to bring you in where maybe you don't forget that it's, you know, animation, but you, you just think of it as an entire story and stop, obsessing over the fact that you have you know animated characters interacting you know with with humans it becomes seamless enough that it's uh, amazing that even achieved that yeah it never pulls you from the story you just kind of accept it you're like oh yeah this is life this is the reality they live in you're never like oh that makes zero sense in reality (laughs) (laughs) no it's almost like an uncanny valley thing right like it just it, it, it is and that's it like this is so Uh, All right, so question, would you want to live in a universe where toons exist? Because I feel like it would be fun, but also you might die at any moment. That sounds... Like, I get the appeal of it for sure, but there's so much chaos... Right? ...that's involved with, with cartoons, especially the cartoons of that era. Like, there's no way, I think, that you would not have a Tasmanian devil <laughs> tearing apart downtown LA because he just, he got upset. You yeah. Know just I mean? a little upset. That's all he does. I was going to hold off on this, but I mean, you, you've Alex, you've, you've hit this. Oh, button. did I jump the gun? I apologize. It, no, 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 no. It's, it's, it's okay. Um, but you know, I, I've become famous worldwide for talking about sequels to movies that, you know, have not come to light. Mm-hmm. And this, uh, this, there's this who frame Roger rabbit sequel that's been in my head forever. And, and the thing is, it's not like a direct sequel. It's like a spiritual sequel, but like the, the, the focal point of the sequel is that instead of dealing with the ramifications of dip, which we can get into later, uh, where you have the erasure of animated characters they thought couldn't die, that in this sequel, you have the potential to turn animated characters into humans and humans into animated characters. A la Cool and World? That uh, yes. success of a movie? Exactly. And and so like and I so when I think Who Framed Roger Rabbit, what I want to live in a world with tunes and things like that, and I think 
only if I could be animated because I like some of those rule sets and I don't want it to be like, you know, like you, you guys are saying, you, you just get destroyed at any time. But if I'm living in that, you know, funny place where I can, yeah. you know, escape into a more, let's say, non-lethal way to enjoy the chaos, it could be a lot of fun. And you know what? This might be a good time to sort of bring up sort of the serious side of this movie. Because, uh, you know, I watched this movie when I was a child, and I watched it even, you know, as a sort of teenager and into college. And I don't think I ever picked up on kind of the social sort of commentary in this film. Because while it would be fun to be a tune, they are not subtle at all. The tunes are a second-class citizen. Yeah. Oh, for sure. And, but, like, I missed that tunes are represented for any kind of disenfranchised, you know, commonly disenfranchised minority, whether that's the black community, the Latinx community that, you know, are prevalent in California. How did I miss this? They have a club that is humans only. And they literally say the tunes work for peanuts. Like they are not subtle, Yeah. but oh my God, did I watch this movie in a new, because I think you talk to anyone and you say, hey, is, is Who Framed Roger Rabbit an allegory for racism? And they'd be like, no, of course it's not. But then you think about it for a second, you're like, oh, it absolutely is. That's incredible. Well, and I think especially today, it's very easy to make that that connection because with with everything going on with the, the Black Lives Matter movement and, and the sort of systemic racism that we see being brought to light more and more every day, um, things like this where maybe 20 or 25 years ago watching it, we would have never even had an inkling yeah. of this being an allegory for anything all of a sudden now today in 2020 it's oh wow yeah i can totally see that this that this entire you can call it a Ooh. race of of creatures yes is being i mean they subjugated. execute these tunes without trial without evidence and you're just like my mm -hmm. god this is uh you know before it's time I, you know kudos to the screenwriter and robert zemeckis for putting these things in that were probably being talked about, but uh, exactly what you said, not prevalent like today, but you watch this movie with new eyes today, which is phenomenal. It, it just it yeah. helps it hold up even more. Look, look, Valiant, the rabbit didn't kill Acme. He's not a murderer. I should know he's a dear friend of mine. I tell you, Valiant, the whole thing stinks like yesterday's diapers. Look at this. <laughs> the paper said Acme left no will. That's a load of succotash. Any tune knows Acme had a will. He promised to leave Toontown to us tunes. That will is the reason he got bumped off. Yes, my perfect flawless impersonation is highlighting what you just Baby said. Baby Herman, here with that, us today. <laughs> that idea that, that Acme uh, left this will that actually like grants land ownership yeah. to tunes like they didn't have that they couldn't even a town made of animation didn't it belong was to them them Absolutely. and theirs they had no mm -hmm. right to it and so like that point is huge and and you know who cares if this was truly the intent or not right now we derive meaning the way we choose and we choose Absolutely. to look at this and understand what this means to us in this moment so was this Zemeckis truly getting, you know, like making a statement stuff, perhaps. But the fact that this is really the first time I've really deeply thought or felt it, like, I don't know if that's just a result of, of cultural shifts or, you know, if, if I was just ignorant before and other people really felt and thought this, whatever the case, uh, as of right now, I, yeah, I'm, I'm on board. I think it's, it's pretty cool to, to decipher that. That's great. Um, it's, it's wonderful. Able to go. And then, you know, if you want to talk about another social issue, 
the whole issue of, of her being placed into this Me Too situation where her boss forces her into a sexual situation that yeah. in the 80s was such a cliche that they parody it in this film. And now you look at it again, truly with horror. But at the time, you're right. like, oh yeah, this is such a part of the industry, such a part of Hollywood. Yeah, we can make a patty cake joke about it. Again, fresh eyes on this film in 2020. My God. It's pretty wild. Yeah, but you do have to think that on some levels that they were kind of treating this a bit like a, a noir film. Now, it's not a noir mm-hmm. film, and I can tell you why, but that that character, the femme fatale character, is an old trope from a long time. You know, like, not just 80s oppressive women in the workplace being sexually harassed, but going back a long story tradition of women being treated as objects and that being a literary you know, uh, aspect of the story, unfortunately. Sure. And, and like, and like, I think, and, and I wonder because there, I don't know if you guys know, but there are, I'll, I'll just call them rumors, but there've been talk that um, there were a lot of different versions of this film that were thrown out there. Number one, because of the short story it's based on, but also because of uh, interviews with different people involved in the writing and directing and that this could have been a lot darker but they mm. wanted to make it more more family friendly and and to go the direction they did. But originally, there were two possible ways of having either uh, Baby Herman be behind everything <laughs> instead of Judge Doom. I had not heard that. That's amazing. and there's also another one that Jessica Rabbit is the one that was behind everything. Okay, um, I mean that's classic femme fatale. Yeah, and so that part there, like the fact that instead they turn it around and have a happy ending where you know, one of the hero, both of the heroes end up with the girl. And like that is, that's not a noir movie. That's not how things unfold. It's a lot more tragic than that. But everything ended up being okay in the end here. And it has that nice, fun Hollywood family ending. And okay, great. That that's fine. That works for, you know, a certain level. And they weren't going for black and white artistic noir to, you know, to (laughs) appeal to the, you know, 1% of the population who would really love such a thing. Um, But yeah, like, I, I think that the, the idea that you could set everything up in this way and make it very clear that baby Herman is, you know, at, <laughs> the you mastermind. Know, yeah. I mean that he, you know, he does, he's got a 50 year old lust and a three year old yep. dinky, you know? So like they set it up in the very beginning that this is someone with the, the brain of an adult. He, he's got lots of, lots of pent up issues going on. <laughs> he could, I could see that, you know, become, and he, you know, the whole thing with that, the will and, you know, that, you know, taking whatever, you know, steps you need to take in order to move them along as a, mm-hmm. a, a people, I guess you would call the tunes, whatever group you would refer to them as. Like, if, Zeb, if Zemeckis really wanted to tell that story, I feel like that could have been an even more interesting way to go. I agree. Now, it's interesting that you said family friendly, and I, I kind of wanted to bring this up because there's a scene where Eddie wants the truth of R.K. Maroon, and he's, he's got him there, you know, with a tie in the animation reel. And he goes, uh, this is a tale of greed, sex, and murder. And I don't think that would ever be the tagline for Who Framed Roger Rabbit, but that is the plot of Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Oh, for sure. But this is a movie that everyone and their parents saw. I mean, I guess it's just because there are cartoons in it, but how in the 80s did we think that this was appropriate for, like, eight-year-olds to watch? Like, your sister. (laughs) How did they get away with this film? Because this is not a child-friendly film. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's amazing to me. Like, first of all, it's rated PG, but, you know, back in the 80s, PG could be anything almost. (laughs) The the, the MPAA was, was... 
playing it fast and loose with the PG rating. Look at uh, Spaceballs. But yeah, like I, I think there's, and I think this is a reason why I, I to this day really enjoy uh, animated TV shows or movies or anime or things that uh, subvert expectations because they look childish, but they have more to it. I think of a show, say like Adventure Time, that looks like oh, animated nonsense, show. and it has Adventure so Time much so good has so much depth to it that. I think the majority of parents not really watching but hearing it think it's just ridiculous and it keeps the kids occupied so you just ignore it. Whereas this is like uh, another example of that where, oh, there's animated things in it. Oh, sure, we could, yeah, we must could spend a lot of money. We could take our kids to the, you know, for something to do on the weekend and go to the movie theater. It's like, you know, so it's just that whole process of, you know, you just happen to get a, a good movie in the mix of this. It, yeah. It easily could have been horrible, but... It just turns out that it's not really a quote-unquote kids movie, but it does have enough going on and treated with enough of a, a light touch that it's only going to give kids nightmares, but it's still a kids movie. <laughs> well, what, what's your childhood without a few nightmares, right? Oh, agreed. Yeah, absolutely. You need those if, to if, grow if up. If you're not in therapy by your mid-20s, <laughs> you didn't get raised right. Oh, because there's that scene where he's falling from the building and Bugs Bunny and Mickey Mouse show up, two arguably the most loved children's cartoons, especially of the 80s. Sure. And they straight up murder this man. You know, they, without <laughs> remorse, with a smile on their face, hand him the spare that turns out to be a tire. And they just, you know, floating down going, oh, that that happened. Um, that was more brutal than I've seen from Mickey Mouse uh, in a, ever? Uh, I was going to say a long time. <laughs> Maybe ever. <laughs> oh, awesome <laughs> you know what though there there were a lot of things in this movie that you yeah, obviously there were things that we missed as kids but there's things that you could very easily miss in this movie if you weren't paying attention to it like the kids smoking on the back of the the red car <laughs> the i thought it was like oh shit that's a fucking nine-year-old with a cigarette <laughs> um the the uh the penguin waiters in the club mm -hmm. uh bringing uh, when Eddie orders the scotch on the rocks, he says, and I mean ice, and they bring him the scotch with an actual stone on it, which I thought was like a double funny thing, A, because they took him very literally, and B, because they're penguins, and penguins give pebbles to like people who are to other penguins That's cute. that they're affectionate that. toward. That's nice. <laughs> the, uh, the, the one thing that really got me was when they were talking about basically doing a construction zone through Toontown and... Uh, turning it into a freeway and how traffic jams would be a thing of the past <laughs> in LA. <laughs> Everyone can get around LA in minutes and that's not how LA works. <laughs> well, even I picked up, um, cause obviously I'd seen it and it's been a while, but Cloverfield looks like the classic four leaf Clover highway system. Um, so as yeah. you're coming to LA, yeah. I was like, Oh yeah, that's what, that's exactly what that looks like. I had totally missed that before watching this film. So that was a cool little like foreshadowing Ooh. of what he was trying to do. Ooh, is this a prequel for Cloverfield? Um, did I say Cloverfield? Is that what it is? Maybe it is Cloverfield. Is it? Or Cloverleaf? I'm now mixing them. Oh, up. It, maybe it is Cloverleaf. It okay. might be the other. It, it doesn't matter. I still count this as the prequel to Cloverfield. <laughs> I mean, we've said it now. It must be. 
Oh, and it's so it's what you know what happens when you get a big vat of dip and you drive it into Toontown and you think it just got knocked away by you know the train and everything's happy again, but you can't put that much dip into Toontown without something crazy happening. And so right. you get you start getting this this morphosis because that's a word <laughs> of you know of the the vial and the greed of humanity with the crazy non-rules of the animated world and these monsters start growing in the background we'll see them later though 30 years if you think if you think about it like pete's dragon is standing there in the warehouse at the end of the movie oh no sure pete's dragon turns into the cloverfield monster yep i can see that it all ties together one of them (laughs) the 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 original the first one so how gross is that dip oh my god oh god Jesus. When he but that's puts like, his shoe in and pulls it out and his hand is now stained red. I, oh, I oh, what a see like my, my yeah, stomach that, turned. That I poor shoe. shoe. Oh, the poor shoe. Did you know Innocent that shoe, shoe was uh voiced by Nancy Cartwright, who then yeah. yes. to be Bart Simpson? <laughs> we all knew that just basically okay, from good. hearing from that. hearing the shoe. We didn't look it up anywhere. We just knew it intrinsically no, in our yeah. soul because it sounded a lot like Lisa Simpson. Yeah, oh. I definitely don't have IMDb pulled up all day, every day. <laughs> oh, but speaking of things scene? that we didn't notice, this is not a big social commentary. It's just, I was amazed that I've watched this so many times and never noticed this. But in the very beginning, as we go from the cartoon short into the real world, so to speak, mm-hmm. um, as they're walking off stage and, you know, Roger's like, I can give you stars. And like, Aww. you know, he's going through that whole, as he's walking by, I noticed for the first time in the background that there was an actor who was strapped into the legs of the mother. Oh, that's funny. Who was who was unstrapping like stilts, like he was like oh, walking no, really? on, on large woman leg stilts, and he was like undoing the legs. And I was like, I've never seen or noticed that's that so before. Clever. And so it was like just these little tiny touches, you know, off in the distance, away from all the action. That it's just like. They're really playing to the whole, like, this was all a production set and everything. And so, like, yeah, I, I enjoyed that quite a bit. Well, and to that point, one thing that I I don't I don't remember remembering, but uh, looking at it now, I go, wow, yeah, that's that really makes a lot of sense. That same scene, uh, right after the yell cut, we have a real refrigerator and a real vacuum cleaner there on the set, whereas yeah. before they were Cartoon. very much animated. So. Yeah. The, the the fact that they they took those and they they sort of morphed them at, to to in the afterthought make them look like animated objects that just happen to also have three dimensions, I thought was really really creative and and wonderfully done. And had that that giant cartoon cheese in the fridge that I always thought in cartoons looked delicious because it's like perfectly <laughs> cut with the holes. I was like, why does cheese actually never look like this? I've never seen a cheese that actually looks like cartoon cheese, and it breaks my heart a little bit. just had a a cheesemonger believe it or not uh last week and got some really good cheese and none of it looked just quite like that even never does (laughs) never does uh there was a line uh also sort of early on in the movie when uh when eddie is in uh maroon's office and uh maroon just gets done yelling at his assistant or whoever the, the 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 film guy and he goes, how much do you know about show business, Mr. Valiant? And he goes, <laughs> well, it's, it's, no, it's no business like it. No business I know. 
Nobody laughed at that joke? No. Oh, no, we laughed when we saw it. I was laughing during the movie, yeah. I mean, if you were buying But when, when you well, repeated yeah, it, I mean. all, of a sudden, all of a sudden it became completely devoid of all humor as soon as it came <laughs> from you. I don't know what happened. But that you want to try it again? We, we promise we'll laugh this time if you want to. That's you okay. Want, oh, right, it, it, it wouldn't be earnest this time. So. Uh, I mean, but, but yeah, please. <laughs> I was going to say, if you wanted to get a laugh, what you should have said is, but the liquor store guy, he knew. <laughs> <laughs> See, <that's good>. <laughs> <laughs> With his arms that like, one was crisscrossing good. as he like says it. Oh, it was beautiful. That was so good. <laughs> oh. You know, I love, you know, the names in this movie. You know, you've got yeah. Maroon, you've got Valiant, which is a great name for somebody who used to be wonderful and now is kind of a bum. Um, Judge mm. Doom, like, they are very, very specific names that are absolutely wonderful in this film. Well, and then, like, in some cases, also lazy. Like, the, <laughs> the director's name, Raul J. Raul, like, his first and last name are Raul. But, like, that's the like name that... that would direct a cartoon short. Like, if you saw a director of cartoon short, Raul J. Raul, you'd be like, yes, of course, that's a man who directs okay, cartoon yeah. shorts. Okay, yeah. I suppose. But, like, <laughs> and they do they do a great job with the reveal when you don't know that Jessica Rabbit is, in fact, not a rabbit, but that's her last name oh, because of amazing. Roger. And what so it's like, it? yeah, the first time seeing it, we're all like Eddie Valiant. We're expecting maybe a super hot rabbit, but, you know, we're we're expecting a rabbit to come out from behind this curtain, and it's not a rabbit. And you know what? There's the scene when she comes out and he's talking to Betty Boop and she like adjusts herself because she knows what's coming and it's heartbreaking yeah. to watch her watch this scene and you're just like, oh, I feel for you, Betty Boop. That's that, oh, that scene. Know. That scene pulled on my heart. I was like, oh, Betty Boop, it's okay. You still got it. <laughs> <laughs> boop, boop, be doo oh. <laughs> Which was Betty Boop in this played by the original Betty Boop? Ooh, good question. Um, I want to say yes without looking, without knowing anything. I think I remember hearing that this was like one of her last credited things ever. Like, but that like I could be one hundred percent lying. I'm not looking this up. I just have this feeling that it is really her. That's cool. Uh, no, I think it is her because uh, May Questel, right? I don't. I don't honestly don't remember. But she I, was in. Uh, she oh, she was in um, uh, Christmas Vacation, which we did. Background. Yes, that's what it was. I remember from. I remember that bit of trivia from when I was looking up stuff for Christmas Vacation <laughs> and leading the fact that she was the voice of Betty Boop and then seeing like the last time it was credited was when she, you know, was in did the voice for Roger Rabbit. So, yeah. Speaking of Christmas Vacation, did you know that they were thinking of possibly Chevy Chase for the role of Eddie Valiant along with... There's uh, a Her- lot of casting yeah. rumors. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I had Harrison also... Ford and Bill Murray as well were the three ones they were possibly <laughs> thinking of. Um, and, you know, yeah. for, for Judge Doom, I also heard... Um, uh, Christopher Lee and uh, uh, t- uh, what the hell's his name? Uh, Tim uh, Curry. Curry. Tim Curry. Yeah. Yes. Oh, cool. See, Christopher uh, which, Lee would be which, t- Tim Curry. Costume. Tim Curry auditioned for it, but he was too dark, and they thought it would be too scary for the kids. Okay, I uh, can see that. He's kind of a terrifying man. When yes. did he do it? Wasn't that right around that time as well? And also uh, terrifying. No, I want to say <laughs> it was a couple of years after that. Let me, well, let me consult uh, Mr. MDB, Mr. IMDB. And they also, as long as we're throwing out tidbits that no one else could possibly find on the internet, uh, that there was at one point they were going to reveal that Judge Doom had killed Bambi's mother. 
No. Yep, that is that was the same gun that yeah, right? uh, yeah killed RK Maroon. Oh <laughs> that just gives him such an evil thing. You know what I noticed while watching Judge Doom is he never blinks the entire movie. I, my wife actually yep. pointed out about halfway through and then you watch and you're like, oh, that's really scary. There's a lot about him that's really off putting. Like just uh oh uh Stephen King's it was 1990 by the way okay so uh, right after yeah so uh he, he, he got turned down for judge Doom <laughs> and he became pennywise well, he, did, he did a little bit in between there but yes uh no th- his teeth especially the to me were, so were very off-putting the and then he so had this like and, ugh, makeup line along his jaw as though like they tried to make it look as if he were sort of covering up his animated side with mm-hmm. makeup but yeah, very much like uh, he looked manufactured. They did a really good job with with uh, Christopher Lloyd's makeup in this. He's so good. He's so menacing. Just you know, obviously the clothes help and just the stare. But just every time he walks into a room, you know, especially the, the scene he walks into the bar with the weasels, and you could just feel yeah. the energy kind of drain towards him and then fall. And you're just like, mm-hmm. oh, he's so creepy in this movie. It's wonderful. Oh yes. Wait. Ready? Hold on. Listen to this. <laughs> Tobits. That was that was dead on. That was dead on. Judge Doom. That was that was that might have been that's, your best impression. That's ever. probably my best impression. Yeah, that's true. Wait, wait, hold on. But here's the funny thing, and I think all oh, you probably know where I'm going with this. That uh, when you like, if you watch the the movie and you hit play, pause, and hit the light switch at the same time, it switches the Sean Connery track just for that scene, and it sounded like this. Man, that was uncanny. Oh, it's a classic impersonation of Sean Connery, I know. Um, I'll do, do, you need, like do you need a towel in the after room that? With us. It's, I, I feel like you two could just take a nap now and just let me carry the load the rest of the way. Um, You're already carrying this podcast. All so, on you, man. The memory, the memory <sighs> distillery. <laughs> this just breaks down to 20 more minutes of us doing Sean Connery impressions. And uh, it's the best episode yet. <laughs> That, 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 that's, that, that would literally be John's dream. That, that's, I mean, that's more or less what I've been working towards for the last for, forever. So, yeah, let's, let's definitely make that happen. Now, you know, there were like a million characters that, you know, that all the different animated characters in this movie have two questions. Well, first of all, not a question much as a statement about, uh, just for our audience, you guys probably know this from like looking things up, but... They wanted to get a few more characters in there, quite a few more that they couldn't negotiate the rights to. We talked in the beginning about how amazing this, you know, Warner Brothers, Disney, the fact that they got all these people, but they wanted to get Superman in there. They wanted to get Popeye, Tom and Jerry, Casper the Ghost, and like a ton of others, and they couldn't get them. Uh, But my question is, out of the, none of the main characters, but just of the, uh, all the different side characters in this, do you have a favorite, um, just cameo i guess you would call it of any other character in the movie mm. oh, that's a uh, good question that's a great so oh, i mean there was a scene i laughed really hard at where they had um the cows auditioning i know this isn't really a cameo but then there was a sign <laughs> behind them and it said cattle call and i know it's a bad pun but i laughed so hard as they're all moving and it says cattle call 
Uh, so that a, made that's you, a, that's a hilarious that. joke. Yeah. Like that's so well done. <laughs> and then it, it did switch right to the um the brooms from Fantasia as he's playing it with saxophone and they're sweeping up. Like that, that was I loved that. <laughs> that's actually my answer was just I was gonna say the brooms because oh, that whole so that whole idea of just you know being able you know oh I got to do all this cleanup and stuff I'll just pick up a sax and just and just they start sweeping and I'm like yeah that's great. You mentioned the penguin waiters. Those were wonderful. Yeah. I think for me, I don't know that it was necessarily a particular character, but a particular scene with sort of non, non stars of the show. Um, Daffy and Donald dueling pianos. Such a good scene. I'd forgotten about that scene until they were like, he opened the door and they're playing. Uh, Yeah. That to me, I think was, was, that was just a blast like it was so funny to watch the two of them go back and forth now alex have you ever have have you ever listened to the podcast my brother my brother and me i love them so much beyond and so Uh, much there is uh i don't know if you i'm i have like an encyclopedic knowledge of everything they've ever done and have listened to all over 500 plus episodes multiple times it doesn't matter the point i'm trying to make (laughs) is they have uh, one of their episodes they all get into a competition to see who could do the best donald duck impersonation which and, one of them takes it well spoiler alert they're all horrible <laughs> yeah. sure but, yeah, that makes sense but like i couldn't get that out of my head watching daffy and donald you know going at fighting at each other imagining the McElroy brothers doing their impersonations of like i want them to recreate this scene for my enjoyment and like that's that's where my headspace was during that scene it, a great scene on its own, but funnier in my own head just from uh, being enriched with other context. Completely understandable. You know what scene made me laugh a lot, which um, it was cheap laughs, but I'm going to take it anyway, is when he gets into the elevator with Droopy Dog. And, <laughs> you know, he even that first step where he falls and Droopy just goes, watch your oh, step, yeah. <laughs> sir. I, I know, it's a cheap laugh and I still died. It still made me so happy. <laughs> yeah. Good times. Yeah, good times. Um, I have a note here that says, I always knew that city engineers were the real villains. Um, I thought that was funny. (laughs) (laughs) So actually, funny story about that. Uh, A real life story. Um, City engineers really are the biggest villains. We have an an intersection near me where you can't turn left on any any of the four directions. You cannot turn left. You have to go past the intersection to a turnaround point and then you may then do basically make the left turn action. Uh, it's absolutely ridiculous. It's called like a Michigan left turn or something like that. Like it's, it's absolutely horrible. And I keep saying that the city engineer who came up with this needs to be fired or like out of a cannon. Stocks in the middle. Mean. Yes, yes, out of a cannon or hung like in the stocks in the middle of town square for people to throw tomatoes at them or something. Like it's just terrible <laughs> so city engineers yes are the biggest villains yeah i think this movie proves it there it is <laughs> <laughs> or like you know all the murder for capitalism that's uh that's what sure it yeah let's <laughs> <laughs> see anything else oh i have a nice fact here the 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 dip um so the chemicals they use in oh dip. yeah you wanted to talk about the dip yeah so um i actually like this um they are real chemicals that make paint thin- thinner, paint thinner, that they use to erase animation cells. So this, the literal chemicals that they actually put in dip are real chemicals that are used to kill cartoons. So that is oh. not a fake thing. That is actually a real thing. 
Well, because I, I knew all the chemicals were real things, like turpentine and acetone mm-hmm. and stuff like that, but I didn't realize that the, the combination was to get rid of, like, Animation you know, to, cells. To, to, yeah. be, to be paint thinner. So I thought that was really interesting. When I read that, I was like, oh, that's clever on a level I didn't realize. I, yeah. I want to know, I wanna know wow, more about that's... Toontown. This is the hot topic I'm bringing to the table. Like... How, I'm ready. How Let's do big it. is this place, and and why did Judge Doom think? <laughs> did he think he was really going to destroy Toontown, or was he going to just erase a little strip for building a highway, you know, or a freeway? Like, what what's the deal with this town? How big is it? Is it is it you know like are we talking about a TARDIS here, and it's just bigger on the inside, and like you go in and it's just infinite, or like you know what what what's going on with Toontown, fellas? What do you think? Well, I was thinking about this when I was watching it last night. Like, when you, when Eddie's driving into Toontown, this place looks huge. Like, because he's driving through this countryside area before he mm-hmm. gets to the actual town piece of it. So, I, I I imagine they call it Toontown with quotations, but it's probably this entire universe that's just like the, when the curtain opens, you go through a portal, and now you are in the Toontown universe, yeah. and you have this literal entire universe sort of a la monsters inc that exists side by side with our own and like you you know that that's it's what but it now is. here here mm-hmm. is another angle for for the uh the sequel that we're probably all thinking so toontown as we've just established is some sort of pocket dimension if you were to build a, a freeway through toontown could you in fact get anywhere in la in a matter of minutes Oh, you think Ooh. it just transports you from one right, spot to the other? Right, because it's again, it's just a little pocket universe. You just go in, you take an exit, and then you're out again, and you you just pop up wherever you <laughs> want it. So maybe this isn't something to, to laugh about, sarcastic, like, "Oh, I get it. Oh, that's what how ironic." Yeah, you'll get anywhere once you build a freeway. But maybe it would have been good. You know what? That might be worth yeah. a few murders. I'm not saying murders okay, but like if you can cut an hour off my transport time, definitely a shoe. <laughs> Sure. <laughs> At least the, what, what, oh, what's, a, what's a little what's a little light genocide when it means shortening my commute in half? Oh God. Um, yeah. Uh, what do we think uh, Judge Doom was under that mask? Do we think he was a certain he, type he definitely, of Doom? He definitely wasn't um, a pussy. Because Sylvester, <laughs> Sylvester, yeah. the cat says that, that was a yeah. nice final scene. Thanks, he Sylvester. That that wasn't what, what he was, and I'm just quoting the movie. It's that. That's yeah. a great joke. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, that one, um, you know, right at the end of the movie, you just need a little bit of, wait, what? What? It's like a fight club <laughs> thing. <laughs> just cut in. <laughs> Judge Doom is Tyler Durden. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so that means Eddie is also oh. Judge Doom. Yeah, yeah. You've caught me at a very strange time <laughs> in my life. Oh, I could, man. I could see, I could see uh, Bob Hoskins beating himself up and then dipping himself in dip or whatever. Like, oh. although to say, to honestly though, <laughs> and then making soap out of the. We've had a lot of fun yeah. here, kids, but you know when we look at this, that the entire Judge Doom being killed, both his transformation from quote unquote human to animated and then melting later, that's pretty intense, and it lasts a long time. You know, this is like, this is not just a, a bad 
bad guy falling off a cliff and oh he's gone this is yeah. like a solid three minutes of him just being violently crushed slowly to death and then melted and you know it's just so visceral it was almost disturbing to watch well, it's so wonderful, too, because that happens in the Acme factory. So, you know, they're using all these props that, you know, Wiley Coyote has used Acme yeah. for decades to try to kill the Roadrunner. And he gets blown up and he gets, you know, dismembered, et cetera, et cetera. And nothing happens to him. But you put Judge Doom with a little bit of dip and he's got that glue in the sword and suddenly he's melting. And you're like, oh, this is brutal. This is this is what actually happens at the end of a Wiley Coyote <laughs> cartoon. Yeesh. <laughs> Oh, I love that they made Acme a real person. Like, you know, it's a factor. It's a name. It's a brand name. But the fact that they, like, took that and were like, oh, this is a central part. His weird, you know, gag jokester cartoons, uh, jokester items are an actual part of this entire movie. Which, uh, when, when, you, when you think about it, Marvin, jeez. Uh, but when you think about it, like, Acme being a real person and then being an advocate for tunes makes sense because like his livelihood is based on their livelihood. Right. So, yeah, that makes sense. He loves no. tunes yeah, a lot. He really like a lot. loved them. Like a lot, oh, a lot. Yeah. <laughs> he really, really loved tunes. <laughs> <laughs> Creepy dude. <laughs> Wait, are you saying Marvin Acme was Harvey Weinstein in this movie? Uh, or RK Maroon. All uh, of them I think were. all of them. I think they're all just a nice, yeah. All studio heads, oh, you know, all studio heads are probably just a little creepy or a lot creepy. There's like a sliding scale, but none of them are actually. Yeah, I guess I don't have to ever watch this movie again. Okay. <laughs> Thanks, Alex. You've ruined Who Framed Roger Rabbit for us. You've, you've simultaneously made it better and horrible. Thank you very much. Yeah, all at the same time. You know what? I think I'm. I'm if that's my legacy, I'm okay with that. That's. Uh, I can die on that. So I, I do have one question for, uh, for the crew here. Um, we talked about Cool World before. Uh, what's the the better styling? Uh, not necessarily the better movie. But the the better stylization, the better maybe even uh, method of of connecting the, the human and cartoon world is it the uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit world where everyone sort of coexists together in the same space, or is it Cool World where there's sort of crossover in in sort of a, we talked about the dimensional thing, but yeah, like a like a dimensional sort of sense where it's more science fictiony and and you you can cross into a different world but the two worlds themselves cannot meet hmm. i wish cool world was a better film yeah. the concept is so cool every time i think about it i'm like oh cool and then i watch it i'm like not cool this movie is terrible it, it reminds me a bit of um uh what is the animation bluth bluth animation in, in that like you have these movies, a long series of movies that were coming out that all felt kind of cheap and generic ripoffs or knockoffs of other movies. Mm -hmm. And like Cool World coming out after Who Framed Roger Rabbit was like, oh, yeah, that made a lot of money. Well, we'll do it, but we'll make it even nastier. You know, and it's like <laughs> it, it's just this idea that like, you know, having sex with a cartoon makes it a human and like that that becomes like central to the play like it's been a long even longer time since seeing this movie than frame roger rabbit because it's just not a good movie from everything i remember about it and i just don't even have the urge to rewatch it but like no you don't need but to. but like too. from my recollection the 
the animation style kind of it just felt cheap like in this one there's a lot of tender love and care put into every little detail to make sure that these 2d creatures felt 3d in a world that where they exist where here the scenes where you have Brad Pitt talking to, you know, I don't know any of the characters' names in that movie, but the animated, some animated chick. Like, yeah, like, that. I, I, it made such an impact that I can remember a single person's name in it. I don't know. But it's like, it feels like he's talking past, you know, just an empty space, and then they drew in and put a little animation cell where that person was. There's no effort made to connect them. And maybe if I rewatched it, I might rethink that aspect of it, but I just don't care to. Gerwald has a lovingly 6% on Rotten Tomatoes, so I don't think you Oof. ever, ever need to watch that film ever again. <laughs> I mean, only if we want to fucking torture ourselves. Yeah, Not even that. Uh, I feel you. Oh, Not by the way, even... by the way, now that I've looked this up, just in case you were wondering about names, uh, Kim Basinger plays the wonderfully named character Hollywood. Uh, that's H-O-L-L-Y-W-O-U-L-D. So uh, that's course. all you need to know about Cool World. That's the character yep. she plays. Nice. Real nice. <laughs> wow. That sounds so lazy. Uh, <laughs> that's our show, everyone. Thank you again, Alex Shabar, for uh, hanging out with us. Alex, what do you have going on in the world? Yeah. So you can check out my Instagram if you kind of want to see uh, what I'm up to. It's at Alex Shibar, easy enough to find. Got lots of uh, food and things to do. It was a little more active before maybe we were all uh, in house arrest for months on end. Um, <laughs> beyond that, if you are in New York and you do like getting together and you actually have some sort of social media presence, I run a website called NYC Social Club. That's nycsocialclub.com. And it's all for Instagrammers, content creators, bloggers, videographers, etc. to get together in New York and sort of check out interesting things together. We were running really cool events until... Uh, Everything shut down, but someday we will be allowed outside again safely. And when that happens, uh, more things to come. So yeah, check out me on Instagram and check out nycsocialclub.com. That sounds awesome. The next time we're in New York, we will have to come around and check out the social club scene. Please do. Cool. Thank you guys so much for listening to us each and every week. Uh, we release new episodes every Monday. So come out and hang out with us as we distill another favorite from our past. And uh, the music in our podcast was originally written by Peggy Lee, believe it or not. And, oh, wait, no. That was, well, why don't you do right? That was, never mind. That was from this movie. Our music <laughs> is actually from Semaphore. Uh, they wrote this great song called Destroying the Evidence that we use in our podcast. You should check them out for sure because they have a lot more material that you should be listening to. And as always, email us with any of your questions, comments, any ideas you had. And if you think me knocking my fingers on this keyboard was the best Sean Connery impersonation that I've ever done, <laughs> keep that to yourself or send it to the memory distillery at gmail.com. Uh, you can also tweet us at TMDpod, and that's our Instagram handle as well. And, uh, oh, yeah, TMDpod.com is our website because everybody's got a website. Um, but, yeah, really, uh, I had an amazing time, a lot of fun here. I once again uh, do want to thank uh, Alex for joining us. Check out everything he has going on, especially as we hopefully one day move to a, a post-COVID world where more social interaction is possible in human uh, person things or when we all become animated avatars. Um, there we go. I'm not that's also another that. video. But uh, yeah, <laughs> thanks again, everyone, for listening. Uh, I'm John Deck. I'm Alex Schiffer. And I'm Anthony Veneri, and this has been the Memory Distillery. Smile, darn you, smile. <laughs>
That's all, folks. <laughs> legally <laughs> oh yeah no that falls under fair use i think it's parody i'm uh parody there you go that. that's what i was thinking about not, yeah. not fair use parody that's it. totally a good point <laughs>